Hello everyone, welcome to the show. It's Monday the 21st of September and this is episode 88 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host Ben Eagle. Because there was so much in it, we're going to dive straight in with today's feature interview. Last week I spoke to Mr Mark Buckingham. Meet the Farmers Friends. This evening I am speaking to Bayer's UK and Ireland corporate engagement leader and former public affairs manager for Monsanto, Mark Buckingham. I'm really pleased to have him on the show. Mark is speaking in a personal capacity tonight. I've just got to say that. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and giving giving us some of your very valuable time. How, how are you doing and um, how's, how's lockdown been for you? It's good, Ben. No, thanks for very much for having me. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting, hasn't it? Um, very different working from home so no travel I, I my job involved quite a lot of up and down to London and and a little bit of around the country and and not having that you know was a big change and the family being at home working from home so yeah lots of changes but it sort of worked I'm, I'm lucky that our industry you know has carried on and you know my role has been able to carry on so so you know I'm fortunate and grateful for that and I haven't had it COVID-19 yet I don't think so um, got away with that so far as well so yeah so far so good um, but but um, very different times aren't they? Tell me about your tell me about your early life let's dive straight in there um, and how your interest in farming and the environment uh, began. Sure. I mean, I'm not sure I can pinpoint it exactly. That the, the my dad um, uh, is a retired chemistry professor um, from Cambridge University, so um, you know a, a good scientific grounding sort of at home, but not not um, agriculture. Although, funny enough, my granddad, his dad, was a um, manager for Dalgetty's in Sydney, Australia, in their um, pedigree merino sheep um, business. Right. Um, so there was some agriculture there a generation back. Yeah, I, I, I was drawn to sort of um, agriculture and, and rural business um, as a career idea. And I did some farm jobs uh, out here in the Fens near Ely when I was at school in summer holidays. And that was great. Fantastic experience and nice, nice work. So that was that was it really the start of, of sort of thinking about agriculture as a possible career. Yeah. So when you, so you've literally come home then actually because I mean, you've you've lived all over the world but you're still back in the fens then. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know that's that's a bit of luck. So the <laughs> the, the um I sort of had to take yeah with, that was with Monsanto I had these opportunities to to move and um and was able to do a lap of the world and get back to UK and then lo and behold yeah Monsanto's UK office was still so when I left it was Trumpington PBI. Yeah. But and then when I came back we were out at Camborne. Um, so yeah, I was able to still live in Cambridge, which was just a bit of luck. Hmm. Let's hone in on your Reading days. You told me before you started recording that you actually have a, a normal weekly call on a Wednesday evening with, with, with all your, your Reading fellow alumni, I suppose, your old, all your old Reading A few, mates. a few. It's, it's the WhatsApp group is, 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 um, Reading uni rowing mates. Yeah. From, <laughs> from, uh, from the late eighties and early nineties. And, um, yeah, that's fun. So, so. We got that going, or I joined, I should say, particularly in lockdown. They've been going a bit longer, um, but it's it's that's a lot of fun. And so, yeah, I read straight agriculture and then specialised in agricultural management. And it was a fantastic course, especially in my first year, I should say. After that, I rather got into rowing and got <laughs> a bit distracted from work. But, um, yeah, I didn't have a, 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 a good career plan. And I landed on being a land agent. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the best way to do that, because I hadn't done the 
estate management course at Reading was to go to Sirencester and a new course they just started a postgraduate course with spending one year on that you could jump start your Royal Institutional Charters of Airs exams yeah. which I think so, I think they still do don't they they do they do and it, then it's become a a proper postgraduate sort of qualification when I it, yeah. when I did it it was a postgraduate diploma and it was the first year they ran it and that was actually really good I enjoyed it I stopped rowing and really focused on the course and it was a great <laughs> group of people because it was the first year doing it so everyone yeah. was keen quite keen and and i think the university was keen too they were enjoying teaching it um so uh, and i i you know got into the work and and really enjoyed that and and then i became a land agent with bidwells in cambridge and had two years in cambridge and two years in norwich so that was my first career step so i got a job yeah i got a job and i had, had a couple of job offers leaving sirencester which was great so it worked but I have to say land agency is not a, is not a, or it wasn't in my experience back then, some time ago now, the, the, the size of the firms and the sort of career path available, there wasn't a huge amount of opportunity. Um, so I didn't feel I could progress. Um, and I was sort of hunting around for something and I was planning, a, planning to ride my motorbike to Australia or something. Awesome. Um, and I thought that's, you know, I knew that was a kind of cop out. Um, <laughs> and, and so I wasn't completely happy with doing that, but I wasn't terribly excited about carrying on being a land agent. And, yeah. um, and then I discovered Nuffield scholarships and I thought, uh, this is okay. amazing. This right. is amazing. You can travel and do something productive for your CV. Um, cause I was very conscious that all my rowing had been great and, and good for me, but not so brilliant for my CV or my career planning. Uh, Nuffield was really exciting. And, and I think I might've got 500 pounds from MAF from the Ministry of Agriculture. So kind of, they had a little fund and I got a little bunny from the Maltsters Association of, of Great Britain and one or two other little grants. So I was able to extend my trip. And I did, I did the potential of China um, as a grain importing country right? And, and looking at potential of grain exports from the okay. UK because one of one of the farm management agreements I was involved in as a land agent it sold the malting barley way in excess of the budget and I said how do you manage that mm. and the farm manager said oh it's demand from China and I couldn't believe it that you know this farm in Norfolk they, they'd blown the budget you know positively on on malting barley thanks to demand from China so that's what sort of got me interested and I also noticed as a land agent that good information on the grain markets farmers liked that that they pricked up their ears if you knew what you were talking about on what's moving the market um why are prices where they are and heading where they're going that was a good a good you know area of expertise so i was i wasn't necessarily thinking about leaving land agency when i did it but i wanted to just gain some more skills and experience and do something a little bit different okay and, and focusing on focusing on your nuffield what would what, what were your key conclusions that you took out of that time and i was i was finding it really interesting with nuffields as to they then look into a crystal ball in, in, in your case you've, you've had a fair amount of time since then to reflect and, and look at the changes did any of your predictions come true I think so. I haven't reread my my uh, report recently, but I tried. I tried to find it, but in vain. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> I've got a hard copy. I've got some hard copy still. The the um, I remember um, commenting on GM crops actually and saying this is this is exciting, but farmers need to be need to be need to make sure that the technology is not introduced entirely on the terms of the developer. 
which you know wasn't I wasn't working for Monsanto at this okay. stage. And the, I thought in hindsight that's quite an interesting comment. But the the um, that my main conclusion was that there there is this amazing potential demand in China. So I did my Nuffield in um, 1996, 97, and and demand was clearly rising, but it's you know risen a lot since. And just based on population times income. So really understanding that and seeing that dynamic, mm. they were going from something that was really probably one well, that they, if you were poor, you couldn't afford a beer was out of, out of range. But then the first product they might go for was something that cost about one or two pence a bottle. I, I did a few pages on this in my report um, in our money. And, but was, that was a decent amount of money for them, for, for, for poor Chinese. And it wasn't it wasn't very nice, but it was it was you know beer, and and the fascinating thing was that the brands Western brands like Foster's I went to the Foster's um, brewery at that time in Wuhan, and they couldn't make something they were happy to call Foster's for a price that could compete. So the Foster's yeah. would sell for maybe fifty or sixty p a bottle, I think, if I recall. Again, I haven't checked these numbers, okay. but it was you know, way in excess of the basic Chinese product. Yeah. And it was a much, much better product. Um, but they couldn't make a profit at that price. And um because there were Chinese beers that were maybe 10 or 20p a bottle, which were which were very nice, you know, not as still probably not as nice as Fossils, but they weren't like the the one p ones yeah um so so if you were chinese you'd be very happy with the 10p bottle and you really wouldn't buy a yeah. 60 50 60p fosters so there was a real challenge for these for the western brands they they were very attracted by the scale of the market um and the growth but at that time um you know uh, 20 plus years ago the market what didn't work the, the, the economics wasn't working um, but all the brewing know-how, the Chinese were, you know, wanted to know how to make malt, how to brew beer, how to market, you know, bottles. They wanted to know all the commercial secrets. Mm. Mm. So it was a real challenge for the companies coming in. But, um, but nonetheless, beer was being consumed. So malt was in demand. So as, as growers around the world, be it Canada, Australia or, or Europe, there was, there was increasing demand and that's continued. Mm. You clearly uh, you moved into broadly marketing communications as as a sort of sector, I suppose. Where, where does that interest come from? Is that something that's developed, or something you've been interested in for quite a long time? Mm. I think I think it more it 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 developed the the um, so when I came back from my Nuffield, I was fortunate to get a job with a grain trading company, um, uh, banks Sydney C Banks in Sandy, and I was their economist. Um, but that and it was really a marketing role. Um, yeah. You had to. My job was um, uh, write some notes for the traders every morning on what's happening to the pound and why, and what what Chicago did overnight, and what we think life and and um, Matif's doing, you know, yeah. this morning, um, and then um, write a weekly note for growers, um, if I recall, or, or a regular note for their grower customers, and then a, a, a newsletter for their grain pools. So that was really marketing communications, although it was based on the knowledge I got about grain markets from, from my Nuffield, it was, it was marketing communications. And so that's, that's really where I really started getting into it. Um, and um, yeah, and then a job came up after I'd done, done 
that with banks for a couple of years. A job came up with Monsanto. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, 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 so we're now I, I moving applied. into the late 90s. Yeah, exactly. 99. Exactly, exactly. And um, you have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> I try. But, yeah. So, so um, yeah, so I, I wanted to work for a large company. I'd, I'd, uh, again, thinking about my career, I thought, you know, and speaking to friends who worked for bigger businesses, the sort of career options and choices and their training capacity and opportunity to, to give their employees opportunities seemed to be stronger in larger businesses. And there are, there are trade-offs and disadvantages, but that's a definitely an advantage. And I think that's still the case that, that you can, you, there's more likely to be an opening that you, you have the, a chance to compete for. Hmm. So I was keen to work for a large business and I'd, I'd met Monsanto on minor field, um, very positively. I heard about them as this big, you know, company. And, yeah. and I remember back in Norfolk when I was being a land agent, you know, we joked and I joked with farmers about, you know, if you had weed problems in your cereals, you'd want Roundup Ready wheat, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. You know, it was that, that was the, that was a, something we, we joked about in, in the late nineties, mid nineties. Um, so the chance to work for Monsanto was very exciting. And, mm. um, Initially, it was just a UK job as a contractor, so not a full-time position, being communications manager for the launch of the Latitude fungicide product for Takeall in wheat. Okay. And that was fascinating to, to sort of understand Takeall and because there wasn't, there hadn't been a, um, a product to manage it. It was the only management was rotation or, or trying to go for continuous wheat and, and, and um, get some equilibrium with the, with the fungus. So that was, that was a really interesting communications challenge. Yeah, and then I was going to say, I mean, just zooming into Monsanto at that time, um, what, were their, what was their sort of brand message? What, what, were, they, what were they trying to aim? What, what were their aims? What were they trying to achieve at that time? So I joined in 1999, and the, the, the focus of the business was 100% on seeds and, and traits, um, shifting from what had been chemistry. That, that Monsanto had been buying and competing to buy seed companies and had bought PBI in Cambridge for its wheat um, uh, germplasm and, and, and library and bought DeKalb, a big um, corn and soybean seed company in the US and one or two others, um, and was looking to use those as a, as a, um, a platform to, to breed and, and to bring in GM traits to add value to those, to those, those seed businesses. So that was the direction of the company, 100%, to use new breeding technologies, particularly GM, to, to bring new value to seeds. And, and that they succeeded. I think it was, you know, that they had a very, very strong commitment to that, to that technology. They, one of the first um, successful transformations of a plant um, back in 1983 had been done by... Um, scientists in the Monsanto lab so so they were they were very early in investing in, mm. in 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 GM technology and I was in this little chemistry bit in Europe yeah. so so you could tell you know where the action was in the company and luckily um while and I knew I only had a contract position on on latitude so I was but once I was in I was able to see kind of what opportunities were coming up and a, okay. a media a media communications job came up in St. Louis US right. which I just I applied for yep. and lo and behold I got it so that was fantastic exciting and my wife kindly agreed to give up her job I was I always find it really interesting when you speak to people who've moved particularly from the UK to the US for a time um, were there any adjustments 
culturally, I suppose, <laughs> that you had to make or, or things, things that you were surprised by, by living there? I mean, definitely. The, the biggest cultural one was this, this Midwestern, amongst some people, they're, they're, and quite a lot of people, they're, they're, um, the social importance of church and, yep. and the, 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 um, they're, they're not drinking alcohol. And, you know, especially after a farm visit and things, you'd want to, you know, on a hot, dry day, you'd want a beer <laughs> and they, they would have um, iced tea. And, you, you know, you got used to that. And, but, and other friends did, did enjoy a glass of wine. And so it's not, it's not everybody, but it's, it's a big cultural factor. So, you know, you're, if you go to see people for dinner, you're much safer taking a box of chocolates than a bottle of wine. Because yeah. you know it depends. You need to if you don't if you haven't met the people you're visiting before. Um, <laughs> so the the that was a big difference. Um, I think um, I think the attitude to the world. You know, the U.S. is an amazing country, and it it's so diverse in its geography and its and and its sort of local cultures in a way. In the 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 Midwest, you know, is is you know more than one culture really in and of itself. And then the coasts are quite different as well. Um, and and so it's a big diverse place and it's quite self-sufficient and I don't think they look a lot you know a lot of people there's a lot of Americans who, who are extremely aware of what's going on in the world but there's also a lot who don't look beyond the US mm. in, in and I'd say that's a bigger proportion than in Britain say okay. which sort of just just culturally people seem to take more interest in in events around the world mm. that isn't the case necessarily in the US same question for Australia, because you spent some time in Australia again with Monsanto. Did you mm. notice what were the cultural changes you noticed there between them and the and the, them and the UK? Sure. Well, a bit less, really. I think I think I found it. Um, you know, I love the, the the importance of agriculture to the culture and, and the nation. Yeah, and that's really really exciting. And you know, they can't take it for granted because still they're closer to the farm so generationally farming is more important but still you know most people don't farm um and so they've got you know the industry's got to work on communicating and, and maintaining that that position culturally if it can but that was that was exciting uh, i think the the you know people in australia love a beer so there's no problem there um <laughs> uh, the, the the um uh, the, the the scale of the place, the links to Britain, you know, the, the the I was fascinated by that. The the so when we first arrived in two thousand and three, there'd be adverts on the telly in in Melbourne for a big um, uh, department store having a sale of Manchester, and what they meant by that was um, uh, bed sheets and cotton things, um, towels, oh, wow. and, you know, which would have come yeah. from Manchester. And this Amazing. was 2003. Wow. But they, they, that was described as Manchester. And to be <laughs> honest, I think that might have changed even now. So just in the last 20 years, I'm not sure. I think that might be a generational thing. Yeah. So that that's changing. That the sort of the frame of reference of Australia, you know, was um, the Commonwealth and 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 you know Britain. But it's it's very much been changing over time towards Japan as its main trading partner, and now now China as its main trading partner in, in Asia. Working in communications in in any business, um, however big or small, always has its challenges, and and but generally these are uh, when it comes down to it, the crux of it is working with people um, and people's opinions on on various different topics in, in various different guises. What are the some of the the things that you've learnt? about dealing with people and that could be that could be people who are on your team so to speak 
it could be people who are attacking something um, or, or, or going against um, something that you've said or done? Sure. I think some listening to understand what they want, what are their interests, that's, that's important. And whether that's an employee um, and, you know, don't assume you know what they want. That's, that's the place to start. Um, or, you know, or don't guess or imagine, listen to what they say and, and how they behave and what they do and, and form a view on what they want if it's an employee and a team member and you're trying to coach them and help them and understand. Um, and um, yeah. And if it's, if it's a, uh, you know, an outside group wanting a say on, on what you're doing as a business or um, set the same and, and, and there's, there's almost always much more common ground than, than, you know, is apparent. Um, so I'd say communi- you know, effective communications has got to start with, with effective listening what what looks like progress to them that's that's the, the start and then is there a fit what are we doing and then then you can start to work from there so based on that what was progress for monsanto's customers and and how did that change you as you progress through sure company? i mean i think i think initially the products were selling themselves that the the and and the first round of of sort of roundup ready soybeans with with and this is this is a key difference that Monsanto was always very focused on um, on its you know a, a business that has has four audiences um, their employees their customers their owners probably shareholders in case yeah. of Monsanto and, and then wider society and Monsanto was very focused on those first three employees customers shareholders yep, wider sure. society what's the angle there yep but that is important, and that was a that was a um, uh, you know Monsanto worked at it, but but in hindsight, not enough or not effectively enough, I think, and and um, you know because it focused very very tightly on those first three. And were you were, were you aware of that at the time? Did, did, was that was that in your consciousness? No, no, and a lot of my role was on the wider society piece. So yeah, I of thought, course, you know, we were we were we were doing our best. Um, and but it was it was I think it needed more of a balanced corporate effort, not not this small team, you know, to to just explain what we're doing. Yeah. But but for a bigger a bigger part of the corporate effort to be involved in understanding what society wanted from farming and making sure we were working with the grain of that. And clearly society wants a lot from farming, you know, every day. So, so, you know, we we all know that. Yeah. We (laughs) ought to, we ought to be able to make it work, but, but, but you've got to, you've got to clearly understand that and make sure you've got, you know, messages and channels of communication that can really connect with that. So I think, I think that was, um, that was fascinating. Yeah. In the, in the role there. At a time when the agricultural world seems to be increasingly polarizing, um, between increased intensification as one particular model and more agroecological based farming on the other, and that is broadening um, the church massively. Um, there are lots and lots and umpteen million different models out there. Are you confident in in the future of, I suppose, glyphosate in particular? Let's turn learn towards glyphosate. Um, but I suppose it, what it represents, because glyphosate, in, in terms of the story of glyphosate, represents an entire model of farming, really. Um, look, I, I, I think um, 
glyphosate's you know uh, been a uh, a very important molecule for for farming and and wider society and will continue to be if we manage it well and steward it well farming needs tools you know right from right from horse drawn you know tools and and the basic equipment through to modern uh, machinery and and um uh, you know internal combustion powered heavy machinery and digital tools and data and and glyphosate is just a tool and all of those tools have side effects be they you know land required to grow the oats to feed the horses or co2 emissions from from diesel powered tools to soil damage and disturbance from pulling steel through it and turning it over um, to invasive species you know presence from from moving um, plants around the world or 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 creating an environment where certain species um you know there are shifts in populations because of changes so we shouldn't i i don't see why we should be prejudiced against chemicals the the chemistry you know is an important subject they're the building blocks of all life um we use a lot of chemicals very happily um in our lives i recognize we've got we've, we've demonized a class of chemicals we call pesticides but we can improve technologies to target them better um, we can potentially research better molecules that have less side effects and are better targeted. But I, I don't see a better product than glyphosate coming along in the short term because it is very effective against plants, um, but has a very low toxicity to non-plants. Um, it's off patent, so it's you know readily available. The people are familiar with it. It's got a lot of advantages. You know, to discard it because it's an unfashionable class of tool is would be you know reckless beyond belief. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, can, can, can you seriously envision a world without it? Can it can, do you think that there's a because there's a lot a lot of talk about it? But can you actually see a time when it might be take take Europe as an example um, mm. that, that that there might actually be a ban? Well, I, I just why why would they? Um, you know, increase their carbon footprint to that degree because you're either you're either imposing a big cut in product productivity on farming, or if if farmers attempt to recover the lost production, they do more cultivations with much more CO2 output. They do much more soil disturbance with less ability to retain organic matter in the soil. Um, they have less effective weed control, so more competition in the crop. Maybe more weed seeds, slightly lower quality samples. You know, they introduce a whole range of problems and challenges which require other interventions to solve. And nobody is made safer by them. There, there isn't a population that is being damaged by glyphosate um, that, that, you know, would show a benefit from its removal. It would be, you know, contrary to, to all the, we talked about interests, you know, before. Society yeah. wants to see less CO2 output, wants to see smaller areas of land farmed yep. um, wants to see you know good quality food um, at an affordable price i think you know glyphosate supports that and that the the um uh, you know the, the the controversy about its safety is isn't isn't well founded in scientific evidence um and you know people should have a choice i, I support if shoppers want to find something that you know didn't use it, then that's I'm glad they can.
but but for for governments to say farmers shouldn't use this tool they need to understand absolutely what they're then asking farmers to use instead and what are the side effects of that because the, 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 the glyphosate's well understood well studied um and if we if if a change were to be made you would need to understand the trade-off otherwise i would call the government you know irresponsible i am going to ask the question simply because um quite a few people have been in touch asking me to and you're you're probably sick to death of talking about it but um back in 2015 uh, the international agency for research on cancer which is linked to the who world health organization published a paper stating that they thought that glyphosate was quite probably carcinogenic um, i imagine that was quite a busy time for you <laughs> yeah it, it was and i mean and it, we, we've got a we've got a strong side of the story which is that iarc um isn't a regulator which they say so on their website um they don't look at risk which is what regulators look at um they they say they look at hazard which means do they think there's any circumstances in which the things they examine could be dangerous um could 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 pose this risk not is it likely they'll actually pose it um and and lastly and most importantly they didn't look at all the evidence and they were very open about this um the biggest and best study on glyphosate and many other crop protection product safety is is a, a big us study um called the agricultural health study which has been going since the early 90s 1993 uh, funded by the us government and specifically designed to look at possible health implications from pesticide exposure um, and it's designed by clinicians it's funded by the us government you know it's totally independent and it's very very good science they look, started looking at glyphosate in 1983 they had tens of thousands of farmer participants but they didn't used to publish their um their data right um, okay. in in um in traditional journals yep. they would they would make it available and it was available to regulators it was available to the scientific community interested in glyphosate but they didn't kind of submit papers to journals that's in the traditional way and that's that was the excuse that iarc used to ignore it to leave it out from their study and there's there's even a media interview where one of the scientists on their review group back from 2015 said had they considered it they probably would have come to a different conclusion and and that that study gives glyphosate a clean bill of health from a cancer perspective and as do all the regulators because it's not just that study that's that's a that's a very large long term um statistically powerful study but other studies also back it up and show the same thing that there isn't reason to think um glyphosate uh, it uh, poses a carcinogenic risk so the the response to iarc is to look at all the regulators around the world who've who've looked at glyphosate and asked is it carcinogenic and have concluded no including since iarc came out with that paper you know if iarc behaved like a scientific organization they would have seen um the two european regulators efsa and european chemicals agency in 2016 and 2017 say we disagree with iarc we don't think it's glyphosate is carcinogenic or um the canadian regulator in 2017 and 2019 the brazilians in 2019 the, the us epa this year and in various preliminary findings previously say you know it is not carcinogenic we disagree with you iarc 
if IARC was scientific, they would go, okay, well, we see what you've said, but here's why we disagree with you. Well, they haven't done that. They've stood with their 2015 publication, which has now been refuted again and again and again by, by regulators around the world. I think it's, it's, it's really confusing for consumers who see that as a headline and see it still out there. Um, but we can point to all these regulatory findings who've looked at IARC um, and said, well, okay, that's interesting, but we disagree. The balance of evidence is not that there's a risk of cancer, it's that there isn't one. It's, you know, these very large studies have, have ruled that out. I should just say, for balance sake, if anyone from IARC wants to come on the podcast, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Probably <laughs> enough. Yeah, rant over. <laughs> I can't have you on the show without mentioning gene editing at all. Um, can, you, can you see GM or gene editing being a part a British ag, um, not only in our lifetimes, but, um, but much sooner than that. I hope so. I think it's, it's, I mean, you know, I'm not a molecular biologist by training. I, I couldn't, you know, take you through exactly what's going on when, when a breeder uses gene editing on a crop. And I don't think the public can either. I think they want to see um, a, a scientist that they trust using these tools and they want to know that they're being deployed to, to take farming in a direction they understand and support, which means lower emissions, you know, less land use, um, better targeting of, of crop protection, whatever it is, so that so that they're, they're, they they trust that those technologies are being used to to further a vision for agriculture they support. That's that's I think the key. Um, if those these tools do not start to become available then you know i I fear we won't you know we will see um more imports and and also more talent go and farm elsewhere if people want to be producers because there's other countries um you know canada argentina australia um who are being realistic about how they these technologies should be regulated so we we risk missing out um, if we don't introduce practical regulations. So in June 2018, um, almost coming fully up to date, you, you joined Bayer as part of their acquisition of Monsanto. Um, do you think the mergers changed the story in any, in any way? Has, has it changed the situation at all? Um, I think it's probably too soon to tell, but I, 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 you know, yes, in terms of, you know, the experience of being an employee, it's, we've gone from, um, you know, a a US-based company to a German one, um, 20,000 employees to 100,000 or more, um, being only focused on agriculture at Monsanto to to being 50-50 agriculture and pharmaceuticals in Bayer. So, so lots of lots of really profound differences, and I think a different sort of company. Monsanto, being smaller, um, you know, had very fast growth targets. Bayer, Bayer has ambitious growth targets, but they're not as fast as Monsanto's. Interesting. And that's 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 um, that's different in the crop science division of, of Bayer. Um, so, where the biggest change has happened with the acquisition of Monsanto, I think. You know, yeah, there's a lot, there's lots of change, you know, still going on. But the Monsanto had turned itself into a company predominantly focused on seeds and genetics with some chemical products. Um, Bayer was a company in crop science predominantly focused on 
crop protection chemistry with some seeds. So the other way around. So the mergers made it much more equally balanced between yeah. seeds and, and chemistry and brought together both companies' investments in digital and data science, which I think is, is very, very exciting and, and developing fast as well. So, um, yes, I mean, definitely different and, and you know, a, a refocus and a lot of excitement about where, where it's going to go. We always close the podcast with the same two questions for every guest. Um, the first one being, if you have a message for the public, any message at all, what would it be and why? I would say um, take an interest in farming, you know, beyond the headlines if you can. Try and grow a few things, you know, on your windowsill or in your back garden yourself and see what happens. Um, you know, I, I grew, um, I'm not a huge gardener, but I did um I've had strawberries for a few years, which have been okay, but they need refreshing. This year I had courgettes, which were oh, fantastic. And you picked beautiful them at the courgettes. right time? They did. I got them. I got a regular supply of beautiful, normal courgette-sized courgettes until they got absolutely massacred by a grey mildew-type fungus. And it was amazing. Ooh. And they're next to some um, tomatoes, which are still going strong. So thank you for the warm weather. Recently, the tomatoes are still still out there doing well. But the courgettes, from, they went from fantastic one week to dead, you know, <laughs> 10 days later because of this mildew. So I, I'd say, you know, if you mess about with plants, you learn a lot and you can, yeah. it helps you understand that the wonderful quality, amazing affordable produce, you know, how, when the effort it took me to grow my courgettes, you know, could I have sold them for what you can buy courgettes in the supermarket? You know, no way. So the, the, I think that's a wonderful insight into, into, you know, getting food from plants. And, and so that would be my message to the public. I think that grow a few things and um, as many people do and really enjoy and, uh, um, but, and think of, think of then, you know, transferring that to the supermarket and the value and quality we can experience there. And a message for farmers. Yeah, I think as we were sort of saying about about this, understand the public's interest in the non-food bits of farming and their 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 real appetite for the understanding the countryside and the things you know people who work there every day kind of take for granted and wanting to know that farmers are seeing that they're seeing the the birds nesting the the you know the mice in the field margins the 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 and and something in ponds you know on, on the edge of fields and those other things in the countryside and and keep communicating about that because uh, i think that is that is our our license to operate as sort of mm. land-based businesses going forward the public wants to know that we can be trusted with these environmental resources and if if we can then we get the chance to grow food and run that business <laughs> but it's sort of the other way around from you know how farming i think it's happening i think it's a lot, there's a lot happening and it, and it's 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 definitely starting to happen um faster and faster but but it, it wasn't happening 10 20 years ago that is a really interesting point mark thanks so much for coming on the show um honestly i really appreciate your insight and um yeah your comments on on all everything we've we've covered tonight so um thank you very much sure but thank you Mark Buckingham. Next week on the show, I have another Buckingham 
Laura Buckingham, who is arable manager and agronomist for Fram Farmers Cooperative, which is based in Suffolk. I hope you can join me then. But in the meantime, have a great week and I'll see you next time on Meet the Farmers. <laughs>